Welcome to the Faith for My Generation podcast, where our vision is to shake and shape a generation with the power of God's Word. We're on one mission, to raise up a generation of powerful believers through the relevant teaching of God's Word. I'm so thankful that you're here today. I'm your host, AJ. Let's get into the episode. Let's get our Bibles. Let's make our confession today. You got your Bible with you? It is the source of your life. When you say this confession, say it by faith, meaning in the depths of your heart. Don't let it just be hot air. Amen? Say, this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today I'll be taught the Word of God. I boldly confess. My mind's alert. My heart's receptive. I'll never be the same. I'm about to receive the indestructible, incorruptible, ever-living seed, the Word of God, and I'll never be the same. Never, 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 in Jesus' name, shout amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. And I'll say this as well, one last announcement. Of course, this Tuesday, go vote. Amen? If you hadn't already, go vote. I've never missed a primary, midterm election, or presidential election. I've voted in every single one. I've always had to choose the lesser of two evils. Oftentimes, the candidates make it very hard to know which that is. But you need to vote. Because you're word people. You're people of God. And you need to make your voice heard. And then after you vote... Get back to business, winning people to Christ, praying, and expanding the kingdom of heaven on the earth. Amen? Amen. Don't wait for your redemption. It does not draw nigh from Columbia or Washington, D.C. Your redemption draws nigh from God Almighty. We look to to the hills where our help comes from. Not men and women, but we do vote. We hold people accountable. Amen. All right, let's get started. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8 is where I want to begin today. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8. We're going to read a couple of verses. We're going to look at two examples of godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Somebody say New Testament. I just want to remind everybody what we're about to read is New Testament, which means it applies to you and me, amen, which the whole Bible does. We're going to get into it. I don't want to jump into it too early, but I'm raring to go. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8. This is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. Second letter. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, referring to 1 Corinthians, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. You ever said something and you was thinking, it had to be said, but I wish I didn't have to say it. You ever been in that situation? You know it had to be said. You don't like it, but someone's got to say something. This is where Paul's at. He writes 1 Corinthians under the unction of the Holy Spirit. And he said, I wrote this letter to you. I don't regret writing it, though when I did write it, I was thinking, I don't know how they're going to take this. For I perceive that the same epistle, 1 Corinthians, made you sorry, though only for a while. Verse 9, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Verse 10, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, 
not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a good, godly manner, what diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, in all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Verse 12, Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Somebody say amen to the reading of the word. You know, in in light of what the Lord put on my heart, he, He put it on my heart about three, four weeks ago to prepare this message and I'll be honest, it's, uh, you know, how many has enjoyed? Enjoy may not be the right word, though I have enjoyed it, but it's just eye-opening the past two messages that pastor has preached these past two Sundays. I mean, it's eye-opening. Thank God. I thank God for my pastor. I thank God for him. And so I, kind of the feeling is when I come to preach after he starts a series like that, it's kind of like when your mom goes grocery shopping and you wake up the next day and you say, did you buy Fruit Loops? And mom says, yeah. But when she pulls out the box, it's Fruity Rounds. And the two cans got a gold tooth and an eye patch. You think, that ain't the real thing. This is generic bargain brand. And so it's like, oh, AJ's preaching today. But I'm, I'm happy to be preaching. But I'm thankful for what he's been sharing and opening up our eyes. And more importantly, I'm thankful for the man of God that he is, that in the midst of lies and deceptions in the earth, he stands up with a Holy Ghost spine and will shoot straight with you by the best of his ability and in the anointing of the Holy Spirit from the Word of God. Because a true pastor will love you enough to tell you the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, that's the love chapter, right? We've heard it every time we've went to a wedding. And we like to think love is kind. You know, be kind to me is what it means, what we're saying, right? You better be kind to me because love's kind. Love's patient. Have patience with me. 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says, Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. When people really love you, they'll shoot straight with you. They'll tell you the truth. This is what we see taking place right here. You understand every book of the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 1, written down by holy men of old, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. So everything you're reading is from the mouth of God, though it came through the pen or the hand of a man. How many is thankful that God uses people? Because that means He can use you, right? So the Apostle Paul is moved on his heart because he hears something going on in this church in Corinth. Now, sometimes, and I think, honestly, it may just because, be because of, you know, not, not picking fun or, or being mean or anything, but lots of times you have, like, low-budget Christian films. And so what I mean by that is you'll watch Jesus feeding the 5,000, and it ain't the 5,000, it's the 15. <laughs> you know, and, and you watch a lot of that type stuff, and it kind of conditions your mind to sometimes think small. But Corinth was a town that had, best guess, about a half a million people. Do you realize that's seven times the size of Lawrence County? That's big. It's huge. Emperors would go there. Major metropolitan area. And the church in Corinth was huge. But there was a problem taking place. Specifically, Paul is mentioning, if you see in verse 12, he's saying, I wrote 1 Corinthians not just for the man that was in sin or the man being hurt by sin, but so I could express my care for all of you. What was taking place? If you went to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you would find out 
that a man proclaiming to be a Christian was committing adultery with his stepmother. And, and they were claiming to be Christians as well. So we're not dealing with people living in the world. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, it ought not be found among the people of God. There's some things among Christians that should never be found. There's some things among Christians that should never be said. I still believe in holiness. Anyone else? Because the Bible says apart from holiness, no one will see God. Now here's the thing though. It's not by your strength you're made holy. It's by the Spirit of God that saved you, who preserves you, who makes you sanctified and righteous and causes you to live a life holy. But what we have here is something taking place in the church that shouldn't happen. So Paul, by the Holy Spirit, sends 1 Corinthians. Now, that's the, the big one, the big one. You know, it's one thing to commit adultery. It's another one. It's your stepmother. Thanksgiving gets real weird. That was a joke, but it's still true. Still true. I did a quick jot down. This is what other things you might think, okay, that's just one instance, AJ. If you look through 1 Corinthians, you will see, this is just my notes. This isn't a complete total survey. This was just a quick scan through. Read through it and then went back and scanned through it. 17 different things that the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, corrects. Somebody say correct. Corrects the church in Corinth. Sectarianism. In other words, these people in Corinth, they say, well, I follow Paul. And another one saying, I follow Apollos, who was another evangelist. And Paul's saying, that's all sin. You don't need to be following any man. You need to follow Jesus. Amen. Immature and carnal. 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says, y'all a bunch of babies. You need to grow up. Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 4. You're arrogant. 1 Corinthians 5. Sexual immorality. Uh, communion with backslidden Christians. Civil disputes being judged by pagans. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, look, you have the Spirit of God and the wisdom of God. Why are you taking your disputes to people who are dead in sin to solve your problems? You have the wisdom of God. You don't need the wisdom of the world to compete with the wisdom God's given you. If they don't know which bathroom to go to, they don't need to solve your problems. Deception. Deception. The idea that you can live and practice in sin right into heaven. I, I've, I've put up over 250 video shorts, uh, scriptural shorts like the reels and TikToks. Some of y'all know that because you're sick of seeing my face pop up on your timeline on Facebook and Instagram. No, I'm just kidding. A lot of y'all shared. I appreciate it. I, I counted up. I got over. We, we passed 10,000 followers on TikTok. We, we, we got over 300,000 combined views on Instagram. Uh, all just Bible teaching. All scripture. Let me tell you what brings out the most hate from Christians. This idea that... this Well, I'll just tell you what I said. I have a video. It, it's blowing up right now with comments. I mean hundreds of comments. All the... Just, you know, you're a heretic. You're a liar. You're deceived. Uh, all this kind of stuff towards me. I, you know, it's like, well, one, I mean, call me ugly, call me silly. That's one thing. No, I say I'm a heretic. That's a little too far. <laughs> the first opening statement says, you cannot live like hell on your way to heaven. Right. Right. That's what they're upset about. Right. 
I didn't say you can't repent. I didn't say that you have to be perfect, though, Matthew 5.48, be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. But again, it's not your strength. But notice what you cannot, and I go on to say there is a deception in the earth, 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 4, in the last days. Does anybody believe they're living in the last days? In the last days, there is a deception that is loosed in the earth, strong delusion that they would be people, 2 Timothy 3, 5, that would have a form of godliness. Man, they look good, but they deny the power of it. Have no part with these people. I didn't say they can't repent. I didn't say that the grace of God, that when they repent and they drop their pride and say, God, I have sinned and humble themselves before a holy God that He won't forgive and with mercy and grace wrap them up and set them free. But what I did say is, you're not going to serve the devil and experience the blessing of lordship by Christ Jesus, which is salvation. Because I will stand before my king and I will not have blood on my hands. No one's going to say, AJ, you lying dog, you knew the truth and you wouldn't tell me because you was afraid. Ain't going to happen. By the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 7, you better keep your marriage vows. 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 8, use liberty, but you don't use your liberty to the point to where it makes weaker brothers or sisters in Christ fall back into sin. You actually live with other people in mind. 1 Corinthians 9, material financial support of the work of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 10, flee from idolatry like pastors teaching. These are all correction. Somebody say correct. 1 Corinthians 11, receiving the Lord's Supper, communion. They had people showing up, having communion. Some of them were showing up early, pretending in the church of Corinth, pretending like it was a backyard barbecue. Then other people show up, there's nothing left to serve communion. It's not, they, they didn't keep it holy or sanctify it. 1 Corinthians 12, spiritual gifts. It's amazing. You look in 1 Corinthians, you see the Corinthian church. They're moving mightily in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But without decency or order. Jesus said, in that day, there will be many that come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do, cast out devils in your name, do these things in your name. And the Lord will say, depart from me for I never knew you. Thank God, I believe in signs, miracles, and wonders. My life's filled with signs, miracles, and wonders. I got a daughter who's two years old that's a miracle of God. But spiritual gifts don't make allowance for ungodliness in your life. First Corinthians 13, love. We talk about, oh, you got to love everybody. Love. But what, what kind of love are we talking about? The God kind of love. The, lo- the love that prefers others above themselves. First Corinthians 14, order in church meetings. Everybody can't just show up and I'll start prophesying. Though we believe in prophesying. Look, it's very simple. My father taught me this many years ago. It was probably after the Sunday where I'd come up, and you understand, I've always held a guitar. I hadn't always played one. Many years ago, I would hold it even though I didn't know what I was doing. It was a Sunday night because after service, we watched the Elvis movie. I don't know, Follow That Dream or something. Those are holy. Those are sanctified, right? So we come back, we come back Sunday night. And we're doing worship, and i moving my hips a little bit. And Dad said, 
I, I thought it was, you know, glorifying the Lord. But, but Elvis wasn't leading worship. And Dad told me, at the point you begin to do something, if you call it worship, at the point you begin to do something, and it draws more attention to yourself than Jesus, you have moved from worship to just physical whatever. You understand you are a spirit and you live in a body and you have a soul. Every person has a different personality. You understand that. I'm not saying you have to fit to one mold or the other. But at the point that you draw attention to yourself, you don't want to do that, do you? If you're worshiping Jesus, at the point you draw yourself to there, to yourself, and take it from Jesus, well, then we're out of order. That's in 1 Corinthians 14, is talking about that. 1 Corinthians 15, concerning the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. Quick survey. 17 things that the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, corrects the church in Corinth. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you're able to mark your 2 Corinthians 7, do that, because we will look at it in just a moment again. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All Scripture. Somebody say all Scripture. So not... Let's just stop there. So not just the ones you like. Not, I have an opinion, I have a belief, now I will open up my Bible and find individual scriptures that I can get to agree with my preconceived idea and belief. That's not what we do as Christians. What we do is we open up the Word and we allow this truth to form our opinions and our thoughts. We don't say, this is what I want, what I believe, what I think, I'm not talking about standing on the promises of God. I'm saying, I want to get away with something. Can I find one scripture to do that? It's what Satan did in the second temptation with Jesus. When Jesus fires back to Satan in that temptation, Matthew chapter 4, after he's prayed and fasted for 40 days, and the scripture says, and he was hungry. You think, well, yeah, you ain't eating 40 days and 40 nights. But he'd hit that point of starvation. So that Satan comes along and says, if you're a God, turn that rock in the bread. And Jesus fires back with the word. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So Satan says, oh, we're going to use scripture. Well, how about you cast yourself off this cliff? Because Psalms 91, 11 and 12, Satan quotes it. He said angels will protect you and he won't let your foot, you know, dash upon a stone. Satan used a portion of scripture out of its proper setting and context. He used a very small portion of Scripture to try and deceive Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Again, Deuteronomy 6, you don't tempt the Lord your God. Those are true, but the way you're trying to use that Scripture, Satan, is to get me off of scriptural truth. Because you don't just have... If you read something in your Bible, and you see, you read this one verse, you need to balance it with the rest of the testimony of Scripture. It's like there's two, speaking of political uh, people, there's a governor and a senator. They're both running for re-election. I saw their ads, and they're using the words of Jesus. You need to, saying, love your neighbor as yourself to support abortion. It's not very loving to the child in the womb. Loving your neighbor as yourself, 
last time I checked, does not involve murder and the taking of innocent life. If that's your definition of love, please hate me. But what are they doing? They're running on their campaigns. They're trying to pick up very shallow Christians whose understanding of the word is an Instagram post. That's the most word they get in their heart and their mind for the day. They have no concrete belief in faith. And then they say, hey, I've heard that before. He must believe like I believe. You need to have the word of God in your heart, planted deep in your heart, so that when deception comes along, you see right through the devilish scheme that's being used to take your heart. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Every bit of it, it's inspired by God. It's profitable for doctrine, for what you believe, for reproof, evidence. Number three, the third one we see in this list of four, for correction and for instruction. The Word of God will build you up. It will strengthen you. It will give you a sword in your hand to fight your spiritual battles. Just like Miss Beverly ministered. Cece whining, she can just sing it now. And Miss Beverly can dance it. Praise God, that was good. But the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. It will build you up. It will strengthen you. And it's what you use to fight the battles of God in your life. But it also brings correction. And I thank God for that. One thing I've learned more in the past three months in my entire very short journey of being a parent is how important correction is for your child. If you really love your child, you'll correct them. Hebrews 10 says that God is a loving father. And because he loves you, he'll discipline you. He'll correct you. Because what happens in the absence of correction? Destruction. At the point that a parent doesn't correct a child, a bad habit is formed, wrong thinking is cemented into their thought, and then the next time it's just a little bit easier to do the wrong. And it endangers themselves. And God, who is loving and merciful and kind, loves you so much, He'll correct you when you get off the path. When you're wrong, He'll just love He loves you enough just to say, You're wrong. So that we can change. Look at this, 2 Timothy 3:17. That the man of God may be complete. How many wants to be complete? Thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now notice this, second. As I mentioned, we, I, I told you, we're going back to it. 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7. I want us to look in the difference between godly sorrow, worldly sorrow, and specifically the benefits of godly sorrow. Again, this is in your Bible, not my opinion. You understand everything that I'm sharing and have been for the past few minutes and the next couple minutes that I share flies in the face of the spirit that is in this world right now. Everything I'm sharing with you because I love you goes in the exact opposite flow of this world. 
and even people who call themselves Christians. That's between them and God. I'm not judging. Just like Pastor said, I'm not judging anyone off the hell. That's not my position, not your position. But Paul says, don't you understand? Concerning 1 Corinthians 5, that man that's committing adultery, he said, don't you understand that Christians will judge angels in the days to come? They'll stand in judgment in the days to come? And he says, I'm not talking about sinners because they have a sin nature. Ephesians chapter 2 said that when you were dead in sin, you had a nature of wrath. We've been studying that in men's Bible study. Your nature was a sin nature. That's why you sinned. An apple tree has apples on the branches because of the sap and the life in the trunk is an apple. A sin nature produces sin. That's why it's so strange, so weird, so peculiar, so out of reason in the mind of God for a born-again, new creation with a new nature, 2 Peter 1.4, the divine nature of God, partakers of it, to go back into an old way of life called sin. That's why it's so strange in the eyes of God. I freed you from that slavery. Why would you walk back over and slap the chains back on your wrist? And this is why the word corrects us. Notice this, 2 Corinthians 7, 9. Now I rejoice that you were made sorry. Not just because I wanted you to feel bad. I don't want anybody to feel bad. But what's the point of sorrow? That your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner. Notice this, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Godly sorrow will prevent you from suffering loss, from suffering injury. Why, why is that? Because godly sorrow produces a change. 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly sorrow produces repentance. Repentance literally means a change of thinking, a change of mind, and when you change your mind, you'll change what you do. Because your actions... Your works, if you want to use a Bible term, is nothing more than fruit or evidence of your thoughts and your beliefs. That's why even the world says talk is cheap. I hear you talking, but are you going to follow through on what you're saying? Because what you think, what you feel, what you believe works itself out in what you do. And when we sorrow with a godly sorrow, it will produce repentance, change in us. Meaning that what we once did, we do it no longer. See, I believe in a Savior that doesn't just save from the penalty of sin, but the power of it as well. Romans chapter 6, 14 says, you are no longer under the dominion of sin. Because you're not under the law, you're under grace. The power of grace, that video I talk, talked to you about that people are arguing all over, I titled it Greasy Grace. And I put a, a bacon emoji beside it. Greasy Grace. Because that's not godly grace. Godly grace doesn't leave you in your sin. Godly grace empowers you to live above sin. Amen. Not in theory. 
Not out here in the spooky. I'm talking about real life. What I have found is the things of God actually change your life. I know some people, they go by all different kind of titles and things, and they're real spooky. You understand when I say that. Like, they're out there, woo, they're real spooky. They got all kind of things. And they say, they'll prophesy something. Just mark my words. Mark my words. I I believe in the ministry office of the prophet. I know men of God that are prophets. I believe the, that office of prophet is coming on our pastor. When I was sitting listening last week, well, what does a prophet do? He directs and he leads from the instruction of the word Amen. and corrects and turns and changes. Right. I know men of God that are prophets. But if you prophet so-and-so and you say, thus and so shall happen at this time, and it don't, and you say, it happened up here in the spooky supernatural and it ain't just touched the earth yet. I know one guy that said that. Well, I don't know what I hearsay. He said it in the 80s, and we still ain't seen it. You would think in 35 years, eventually, the supernatural would hit down on the earth. Or maybe, just maybe, someone got off in their flesh. What's wrong with that? I've done it. You've done it. You know what? I was wrong. Forgive me. I missed it. That's godly sorrow. You know what? I own up to it. And that produces a change. And that change leads to salvation. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Leading to deliverance. Leading to freedom. Because God has no benefit in you feeling bad about anything just for the sake of feeling bad. You understand there's a thing called conviction and there's a thing called condemnation. Condemnation is guilting you into sorrow, which produces death. Conviction is, this is wrong, and if you'll receive my truth, I'll empower you to change and set you free from it. And what I was doing, I'm not going to do it anymore. And that worked itself out in this Corinthian church because this man that was in sin quit sinning. I know it's 2022, and a lot of Christians, for whatever reason, they have failed prey to that deception, but you can quit sinning. You can live holy. You can live free. Because godly sorrow produces repentance, and it leads to salvation. It will lead to salvation. Notice this. We're going to see this. Every head's going to shake up and down, yes, when I ask you this question. 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. You ever done the wrong and you're thinking, I'm going to have to own up to it. I don't want to do it. And you got all this kind of going on. And you think, oh, I don't want to die. Why did I do this? If I could just go back in time, I would undo it. But I did it, and i got to own up to it. And, you, and there's like this resistance. But when you finally confess, I did it. I shouldn't have done it. It's like weight of the world just drops off your shoulders. Oh, that felt so good. You just come out clean. And you feel clean. When you own up to it, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done that. And it's like just like a, a it's like a, a whale bursts open in your spirit. And it just starts. You start repenting, not just that thing, but 17 other things you did over the past 27 years. Because it just feels so good to make things right. Godly sorrow will never be regretted. Worldly sorrow produces regret. In fact, turn with me to 1 Samuel 15. We're coming to a close here. I want you to see this. 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. 
realize I got you just for a few more minutes. Second, first, first Samuel 15. <clears throat> Israel asked God, goes to the prophet Samuel, wants a king. Because unfortunately, Samuel didn't rear and raise his sons. His sons are sinning against God. It causes the nation to reject and put them off because they're sinful and all the wrongdoing they're doing. So then Israel's response is, you know, Lord, don't bring salvation or repentance to them. Their response is, make us like all the other nations and give us a king. Because up to this point, they've never had a king except for God. Because when Samuel goes before the Lord and says, they've rejected me, God says, actually, they rejected me, God, not you, Samuel, because I was the king of Israel. Now they want a man as their king. But God gives them what they ask for. So God gives them a king, King Saul. King Saul is small in his own eyes when he first becomes king. Even though it says he's a, he stands, his shoulders are at the head height of all the other men. So when, he becomes, when he's to be anointed as king, he's trying to hide. But it's real hard to hide when you're up here and everyone else is down here. And that's what the Bible says. So he becomes king. 1 Samuel 13, he is supposed to wait on Samuel the prophet to give a sacrifice. But the people start to get antsy. And he knows he needs the blessing of the Lord to go into battle. But the people, fear of man, starts working on him. So he comes up with a bright idea. I'll disobey the word of God and I'll do the sacrificing myself even though I'm not anointed to be a priest. And what happens the moment after he disobeys? Here comes Samuel. And he said, why'd you do this? And Saul's response is, the people. I got afraid. Do you know that once you start acting out of fear, you'll mess up time and time again? So you move forward to 1 Samuel 15. The Lord tells Saul to go against the Amalekites because as a nation, judgment has come on this nation. There are times when judgment comes on a nation. It came on the Amalekites. God tells Saul, destroy everything that lives. Saul goes in battle and he disobeys. He allows the king to live and they take the absolute best of all the livestock and cattle and sheep. So here we are, 1 Samuel 15, verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the ox, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. They put off the instruction of God, and they went out on their own judgment. Mm, we don't want to take out the king. We can do what other nations do and make him... Uh, a mockery in the king's court. That'll be good. And we'll take the best of all the livestock and animals. Well, why did they do that? Verse 12. Jump down a few verses. So when Samuel rose up early in the morning to meet Saul, it was, that, it was told Saul, excuse me, Samuel saying, Saul went up to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself. And he was gone around and passed by and gone down to Gilgad. So if you go down to verse 13, Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. Oh, praise God, I've performed the commandment of the Lord. 
But Samuel said, verse 14, Why do I hear the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of ox which I hear? Let me tell you something. Partial obedience is still disobedience. So he asked him, why'd you do this? What was the purpose of this? Jump down to verse 20. But Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission which the Lord sent me and I brought back Agag, king of Amalek. First problem, God didn't say do that. And I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Verse 21, but the people, there's the fear of man again. You're going to either fear God or you're going to fear man. You better pick which side you're going to fear. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and ox, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to the sacrifice to the Lord God in Gilgad. Oh, I did it for a real good, holy, righteous reason. We're going to bring it to the house of the Lord. I'm telling you, AJ, if I win the lottery, I'll start tithing. I'm not going to hold my breath. Because if you can't tithe a dime off a dollar and you hit the mega jackpot, what was it, 700-something billion dollars? After tax, $424 billion, uh, whatever, or not billion, million, $424 million. If you can't tithe the dime off a dollar, you will fall down dead writing a $42.4 million check. <laughs> but if you get it finished, I'll take it as the honorarium to do your funeral. Amen. First Samuel 15, 22. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? As obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's also rejected you from being king. Notice this. Just like faith is an outworking of what you believe in God, sin is an outworking of a wrong heart. When a heart is right, it'll be obedient and faithful to the things of God. John 14, 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Shared that one on TikTok and Instagram. Someone replies... That's written to the Old Testament Israelites. John? Yes. People start chopping up the Bible. What I have found is if you start chopping up your Bible, the only part of your Bible that you have left is what makes you feel good about who you are without the power of God <laughs> leading your life. I want it all, even the parts that correct. Notice this. So if a wrong heart... A wrong heart produces sin. A right heart will produce righteousness. Amen. Now, understand, righteousness is our right standing with God. I shouldn't say that. I corrected myself. It will produce holiness. Yes. Holiness is the outworking of our standing with God. And that's what Samuel's saying here. What you're trying to do outwardly, it looks good. 2 Timothy 3, 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, flee. Stay away from those type of people. Saul, it sounds real holy. I'm kept this for the Lord. But Saul, it's disobedience. And what you have birthed in your heart, disobedience, rebellion, it's like witchcraft. And being stubborn, refusing to change, you have shaped an idol of yourself. That's one of the greatest forms of idolatry, I believe, is the kingdom of self. My truth. You ever heard that? Well, that's your truth. 
And this is my truth. Bro, that's your truth, bro. This is my truth. I understand, I understand that's your truth, okay? They start out real nice, but when you confront them, the things come out. That's your truth, bro. Okay? No. There is truth, and it's the truth of God's Word. And I will yield and bow down at the holy feet of King Jesus. And I will say, Lord, command you me. Lead me. Guide me. Because I don't want to be at a place where I'm worshiping the idol of myself. One last place I want you to see this. 2 Samuel 12. 2 Samuel 12. 2 Samuel 12. Our main text, 2 Corinthians 7.10, tells us that worldly sorrow leads to death. Unfortunately, we see with King Saul, he doesn't repent. In fact, he asked Samuel, come back with me and worship. If you keep reading in 1 Samuel 15, lack of time, we're not able to do that. I wanted, I wanted to get you off on godly sorrow because that's where we need to be. But in that illustration of worldly sorrow with King Saul, he never repents. He asked Samuel, please come back with me so I can worship in front of all the other princes of Israel. Fear of man. No change. I don't want to look bad, Samuel. I'm the king. I don't want to be found out. And worldly sorrow leads to destruction. We never see Saul repent. We see the Spirit of the Lord leave Saul. We never see him repent. It is so sad. It is so unfortunate. Because just two, three chapters before, he's prophesying. And in that day and age, it wasn't the promise we have today where the Spirit of God is poured out on all flesh, all people. In that day and age, the Spirit of the Lord sat on some. And there was an anointing for the king, but then he gets a prophet anointing as well. He never prophesies again because he never repented. Now look at this. This is godly sorrow. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let me get you up to speed. David doesn't do what he should do, which is go out to war in the time of war. He stays back home and he sends out his troops off to war. That was the first problem. My grandfather, I would, and it's not Bible, but we say something so often you think it's Bible. But it's a, it's a classic old phrase, and when I say it, I know you've heard it. But he would, he would always ask me, what you doing, A.J.? And if I said nothing, he would say, you need to find something to do. Because <laughs> an idle mind is the devil's workshop. You know, if you'll just be busy doing something, you'll keep yourself out of a whole lot of trouble. And let me just talk to the men real quick. Men, you need a goal. You need to have something to strive towards. You need to work for something. You need to be pushing something. I understand, you know, got different seasons of life, but you need to set your hands to do something. Because one of the most dangerous entities in the world is a man with no purpose and finds himself with a whole lot of time and mischief comes about. I'm telling you, if you'll keep your mind and your heart and your hands to something, it will eliminate a lot of opportunity for temptation. So David, he didn't do that. And he walks out one day, and he sees a lady bathing. Second problem, when he saw her, he didn't turn back and go inside. He kept watching. Just because it comes up on the TV doesn't mean you have to leave it there. Just because you're scrolling on the phone doesn't mean you have to let it run its course. He didn't. He kept watching. So then he gets an idea. Because you understand, 
Sin comes in seed form, and that's called temptation. But just like any seed, good or bad, if you don't let it take root, it's a whole lot easier to get rid out of your life. So David, he, let, he lets that sit in his heart. He lets that sit in his mind. He gets a good idea. She's real pretty. Let's have her come over to the house. Well, problem. She's married. Ah, not that big a problem. I'm king, and her husband's at war. First law he breaks, he coveted his neighbor's wife. Second one, he commits adultery. Then, as sin always does, a downward spiral to destruction he finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant. So he tries to cover it up. Brings back her husband. Husband and wives, you know, he's come back from war. Go see your wife. He won't. You rise a man of honor. He sleeps on the doorstep of the king's temp, uh, t- uh, house. Because he said, how am I going to go home in my bed with my wife while my comrades are out fighting the battle of the Lord? I'll sleep right here on the step and you, until you send me back into the battle, a man of honor. So then David kills Uriah. Not with his own sword, but he sends Uriah, he tells Joab, the general, send Uriah out to the hottest part of the battle, and when things get real bad, real rough, pull back all his buddies and let him die. And he was killed. And immediately, David then marries Bathsheba. Oh, Uriah, one of my mighty men. He's fallen in battle. I will do the honorable thing publicly, and I will take his wife into my home. Mm. Oh, honorable. Problem. God sees everything. 2 Samuel chapter 12. The prophet Nathan. Thank God for prophets. Thank God for pastors. Thank God for men and women like you who love the Lord and will speak the truth. The prophet Nathan comes to David. And he tells this story. David's convicted. And David says in this story that Nathan tells, we need to go kill this man who's done this wrong. And Nathan said, you're the man. And what does, David, what does Nathan say to David? Verse 12, for you did it in secretly. You thought you could get away with it. You thought it was in secret. But this retribution, verse 10, the sword that comes against your house, the destruction of your family, you took one man's wife, you're, all your wives are going to be gone. That's another problem. You only need one. But all the ones you did get, I'm going to get, take them all. And though you did the sin in secret, everything, this judgment that comes against you, will be done before all of Israel. Now here is an example of godly sorrow. Verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. That's it. No excuses, no reasons why, no, well, you don't understand. Just, I sinned against God. Do you know, I found this out by living it out and the Lord rebuking me over it. If I'm truly sorry, if I'm truly repentant, I'll leave all my excuses behind and I'll just own up and say, I'm wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Forgive me. I could pretend like I had a reason, but the reality is I disobeyed and I shouldn't have. I fell for the temptation. I fell for the lust. I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have done it. Because at the end of the day, whether you sin against... Notice, he says I sinned against the Lord, but he sinned against himself, his marriage covenants, against Bathsheba, against Uriah, 
against the whole host of armies of Israel and Judah. Can you imagine the general saying, that guy right there, kill him off in battle. If the rest of the armies found that out, they think, I ain't fighting for this guy. What if I'm next? What if he don't like me and he kills me in battle next? I mean, he sinned against so many people. But at the root of all sin is this. I've sinned against God. I've transgressed against God. And what we get from this experience is Psalms 51. Psalms 51 is David's prayer of repentance to God. Probably one of the most familiar verses you know is in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart. O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Verse 11, don't cast, away your, cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Because godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation. You know, we got all different kinds of messages that come from the Word of God. Some of them make us want to run, jump, shout. And maybe today this one isn't one of those per se. But I love you enough to tell you, that if you experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your heart, whether it's you, whether it's me, whether it's now, whether it's later, yield to it. Amen. Don't fall to the deception that's in this earth. It matters to God. There's a reason we have an advocate with the Father. 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, He is just and faithful to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He's not convicting you to make you feel bad just for feeling bad. He's not convicting you just to leave you where you are. He's saying, I love you too much to leave you the way you are. I love you too much to allow that temptation that's come off this <laughs> by whim of Satan, by, by some form of attack, it has made its way into your heart. And I love you too much for your heart to be unpure, impure, to be contaminated. I love you. I love you enough to tell you the truth. I love you enough to convict your heart so that your ways can be pure. Your heart can be clean. Because when you get your heart right, you get your life right. When you allow your heart... That's what, that's what verse 17, Psalms 51. The sacrifices of God. See, Saul thought the sacrifices God wanted was goats and lambs and cows. If Naomi was here, she would make every uh, animal noise. She knows all the animals by noise. That's what Saul thinks he wants. But David gets it right. Psalms 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These God will not despise. When the heart's right, you'll get everything else right. Who wants a clean heart before the Lord? Let's stand up on our feet and we prepare our hearts to pray to God as we convene this service in the house of the Lord so that we can go out and live the things of God this week. Father, I come before you. I'm thankful for who you are and how much you love us, how much you care for us. You are a good Father. And we thank you for your instruction by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God. And Lord, that's our desire. Oh, we thank you for a clean heart, and as our pastor has led us so many times in prayer, Lord, if there's just anything, it's just as simple as this, Lord. If there's anything in us that's not like Jesus, we don't want it. We don't want it. Lord, I thank you that by the fire of the Holy Spirit, by the truth of your word, you refine us like pure silver and pure gold. You remove out all the impurities. 
Jesus said that you're the husbandman, the caretaker, and that you prune the branches of the true vine so that we can bear much fruit. Prune us so we can bear more and more fruit. That's our desire, Lord. We really, really want to live close to you and closer. And we don't want anything to ever come in and create a divide. We don't ever want to be in a place where of what we've done or thought, it makes us fearful to come into your presence. Oh, no, we run to you, Lord. That's the place we must go to be cleansed and continually cleansed. Wash clean and continually wash clean. For you're returning for a church that is pure and undefiled. Pray this prayer with me. Say, Father, I thank you for who you are and how much you love me. I thank you that when you produce godly sorrow, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And it brings a change in my heart. And that's what I want. I want my heart to be clean and continually clean, pure and always pure. If there's anything in me not like Jesus, reveal it and remove it by the power of the blood of Jesus that cleanses and sets free. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. God bless you. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of the Faith for My Generation podcast. Remember, every Monday I've got a brand new wake-up call for you, and every Thursday I've got a brand new episode right here on Faith for My Generation podcast. And remember, we are the faithful.